Church, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, as we've been beautifully led by our chapel choir and also our sanctuary choir. We're so grateful to be able to open his word. For those of you that are new to Dawson, we are journeying through Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. We come now to the fourth chapter, a chapter that helps us to answer the question, what hope do we have in the face of death? This is the question that Paul intends to answer to the church 2,000 years ago. But he also, as we overhear his conversation through the inspiration of the Spirit, he answers that question for us. What is our hope in the face of death? I dare say the most painful experience that anyone in the sanctuary can face is the death of a loved one. It can be absolutely heart-wrenching. Sometimes it comes with suddenness and surprise. It comes with a call that is a thief in the middle of the night that abruptly awakens you with news that boggles your mind in the moment. You can't help but to utter the words, is this for real? Are you sure? I was just with her. I was just with him. And it feels as if in those moments, in the days ahead, as you walk through this surreal dreamlike experience where you head to a funeral home and people that love you and know you come by your house and they hug your neck and they drop off meals and you think to yourself, someone please wake me up. Sometimes death comes like a thief with suddenness and abruptness. Sometimes it comes like a long, drawn-out prelude that seems to never get there. The diagnosis, the consultations with doctors and appointments, You've said your goodbyes, you've cried your tears, the shock of a diagnosis is worn off in this time, and months can occur and years can occur. But when that day comes, though it is not a thief in the night, that it is not a sudden, abrupt tragedy, you still can't fully be prepared for saying goodbye to your earthly loved ones. Paul is writing to a church 2,000 years ago that is facing the question, hey, Paul, what happens when our friends and our family members die? What, what hope do we have? And out of all the things Paul could have given comfort to these Christians in Thessalonica, he, he would say these words that are found in chapter 4, verse 13, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, you can underline that, you can circle that, you've got to understand what that means. We'll come back to it. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Then he comes back to that image. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Third time, that image. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive 
who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, everything that I'm talking to you about here, I'm doing it for one reason. Encourage one another with these words. If you've ever wondered what is our hope in the midst of death, what is our hope in the suddenness of the thief that we know to be death or the drawn out, prolonged difficulty that comes with disease and sickness this side of earth, notice that Paul says that our grief in the face of death is natural. Don't take just my word for it. Again, verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. We've had three chapters, going into four chapters, where Paul seems to be reviewing and reiterating things that he has taught the Thessalonian brothers, or the Thessalonian brothers there, while he was there for three weeks planting this church. It seems at this point, this is something that did not come up while they were together. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Ignorance is not a bad thing. It's just the absence of information. They didn't know the answer to the question, well, what hope do we have in the face of death? And so Paul comes and he says, let me tell you about those that have fallen asleep. Don't misunderstand what he's using with this metaphor. Common metaphor in that first century world. He's not talking about your sleep score at the end of a restless night. He's not talking about getting more naps in the day. This is not what Paul's talking about. All throughout the time of Paul, you would have even like in Homer, in the Iliad, this Greek poet talking about death using the image of sleep. Paul, uh, Homer would, would say in the Iliad, a poor fellow sleeping asleep, killed in the defense of his fellow citizen. Paul would use this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, talking about there are people on the earth after Jesus was raised from the dead who saw Jesus with their own eyes. And so uh, Paul talks about those people by saying in verse 6, then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some, notice again, they've done what? They've fallen asleep. Not talking about sleep patterns here. They've died. Now, Paul wants us to understand that we do not have to grieve those that have left this earth without hope. Now, he doesn't say don't grieve. He says not to grieve as those without hope. I hope you know this. I hope you've not bought into this lie that can sort of seep into the church that your tears in the face of a loved one who dies is a sign of weakness or the sign of faithlessness. I, I hope you, you don't operate under this illusion that God is in heaven saying, hey, suck it up. What do you have to cry about here? Move on. No, Jesus himself is our model. You remember in John chapter 11, he comes to Lazarus' tomb, to the very funeral procession that is occurring there. And in that moment, do you remember Mary and Martha, they, they greet him and said, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. And he sees, he sees the tears of Mary and Martha. He sees those who are grieving around them that love Lazarus and he loves Lazarus. And then we have these two words, Jesus, what? He wept. It's Jesus who invites us, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Do not operate under the illusion 
That even for those who are in Christ, even for our family members who love Jesus, who have died and they're with him in heaven, do not think that it is not natural and appropriate for us to grieve and to grieve deeply. Paul himself, writing to the church at Rome, would say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It is not a sign of faithlessness to have the human emotion of grief strike you and overwhelm you because you know where that you know where that emotion comes from it comes from the deep gift of the love that you have for a friend or a family member and the absence of their physical presence with you it grieves you and it grieved our savior so notice that our grief in the face of death is natural but as christians we have a hope beyond death So we don't grieve as those who do not know where all this story is headed to. I had a friend who was sort of dramatic and sort of had a sarcastic bent to him. And every time we part ways, every time that we go our separate ways, he would never say goodbye. He was sort of rather dramatic, like this sort of Shakespearean actor would say, until we meet again. And I hope you know, for all of your family members and all of your friends, who are in Christ, who depart from this earth, all of your earthly goodbyes will be transformed until we meet again. Until we meet again. Your uncle who's a follower of Christ, you will meet him again. Your father, your sister, who's a father of Christ, We will meet him again in heaven. Your daughter or your son is a follower of Christ. You will meet him again. This is the hope that we have as we who grieve, we grieve with the hope of Jesus. This is a hope in the midst of grief that is supernatural. Notice what I'm not telling you. I'm not saying, hey, remember well their life and the indelible imprint that they've made upon you. Yes, that is true, but it's not enough. It is not enough for us to have a hope of the lasting legacy of an earthly pursuit of hobbies and occupation and personality. That's all important, and it makes this indelible print upon us, but it is not enough. Our hope in the face of death is a supernatural hope, and it is a hope that is rooted in two central events. One is the resurrection of our Savior, and the other is the return of our Savior. In this very passage here, we find in verse 14 that our hope is found in Jesus' resurrection. Notice again in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those are the people who have died and are with Jesus in heaven 2,000 years ago and right now, the great cloud of witness that is there. So here's the central truth that Paul is laying out. Here's the good news that our debt that is a sin debt, has been paid by his sacrificial death upon the cross. And that Jesus' resurrection, what we sing about on Easter Sunday, up from the grave, he arose. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. That central truth that Jesus did not stay in that tomb, but he was raised on the third day by the power of his Father. So he has defeated death. And the, and the clinch of death and the singe of death and the 
thorn of death. It has ultimately been removed by the promise of resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus, it is the power that defeats the grips of death. But also it's a preview of coming attractions. Because he is raised and he's seated at the, third, uh, the right hand throne of the Father, what we see in this passage is, is that he is going to come back, our Savior, he is going to come back, and he is going to come back with those who have fallen asleep. Now, if you were sitting there 2,000 years ago, like a classroom there at church with the Thessalonian believers that were hearing this, of course you who have an eager mind would raise your hand and say, hold on. I got a question. What exactly, Paul, are you talking about? What, what, are you, what do you mean here? That those who have fallen asleep, God's going to bring back through Jesus. When is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Paul says, good question. I've got some more to tell you. So our hope is found in Jesus' resurrection, but also our hope is found in the promise of Jesus' return. Notice in verses 15 through 18, he expands upon this, uh, attempting to give us glimpses of some of the questions that we might have and the answers to those questions. For this we declare to you by our word from the Lord that we who are alive, notice that Paul is saying here, this isn't my opinion. I didn't workshop this with Silas and Timothy. I didn't ask all the apostles, hey guys, what, what do you think I should tell them about this? Verse 15, this is a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Where we're headed is fixed. If you are in Christ, you will always be with the Lord at his second coming. Now notice that this hope is grounded in the promised return of Jesus. Oftentimes when we start talking about the second coming of Jesus, we can be distracted by our endless array of questions. Questions about the details. Questions about the when, the where. Paul is really not that interested in this passage, nor really is the New Testament interested in giving us an answer to every possible question we might have about the second coming of Jesus. So since that's the case, guess what? Christians for 2,000 years, and especially in the last 200 years or so, they have come, people that love the Bible, that believe Jesus is coming back, they have come to different conclusions about some of the details. Even this passage that I am preaching here, there are Christians who love the Bible, who have a different interpretation of what I think Paul is talking about here. Now, what's clear, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to be accompanied by the soundtrack. There's a cry of command. God is saying, it's time. It's time. The time is now. The cry of command comes. Number two, there's a voice of the archangel. Who's that archangel? Well, we know in the Bible it's Michael. Maybe there are others. I don't know. We don't know. Paul doesn't detail that. But the voice of the archangel 
the sound of a trumpet, the details aren't really as important as what the result of what is accompanying his second return has given us. Paul is saying the second coming of Jesus is not a secretive event. It is not something that the few and the proud and the insiders who have a secret knowledge are going to know about. Mm -mm. It is going to be a cataclysmic event that every media outlet will be forced to cover because it will be worldwide in its scope. You don't have to be somewhere. It's like, well, where do I need to be? Where do I need to be to see this here? Maybe I'm not going to know about it. Well, of course you're going to know about it here. It is a cataclysmic event that is not secretive. All of the world and all of heaven and hell itself will know what is occurring when he comes back. Verse 14, we read that Paul says that he is going to bring with him the souls of those who have fallen asleep. Let's think about that for a second. Because 2,000 years ago, there were people who died. Now there are people who die. And if they're followers of Jesus, what happens? This is the crux of what people are asking Paul. Well, you know this, I know this, that when a person dies, if they are a follower of Jesus... To be absent from the body is to be present where? To be present with the Lord. So if you are in Christ, your soul departs from your body and is present instantaneously with Jesus in paradise, in heaven, and is secure and is safe. Body remains here on earth. So Paul says, when Jesus comes back, the souls of those, the great cloud of witnesses that maybe have some of your grandparents and sons and daughters and friends that are there, that are safe and they're, they're whole in Jesus there, their souls will come back with Jesus. They're accompanying him. Paul would write about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So there will be a reunion between the departed souls that are in heaven and their bodies, and they will not be an earthly body that they will receive. It will be a glorious resurrection body. Now you say, well, David, what will that glorious resurrection body be like? Well, Paul, he's just not that interested in answering all the types of questions that we might have. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's sort of like a seed that buds into a flower. There is a continuity between our earthly body, but it is gloriously transformed into our eternal body. We know we're going to be clothed forever in Christ, and that clothing will fit perfectly. It's never going to wear out. Now, it's hard for us not to speculate. It's hard for us to not ask questions. We want to know the details. What, what exactly would this resurrection body be like here? And generally, we want to know questions that are connected to our earthly experience of life. Will I have x-ray vision in my resurrection body? Will I be able to fly in my resurrection body? Will I be able to be faster than a speeding bullet? Will I be able to, to uh, leap tall buildings in a single bound? I mean, we, we're asking sort of Superman-like questions, are we not? And the answer to those questions is that I don't know. But I do know this. Those resurrection bodies are going to be better than anything we can imagine. And I do know this. They will be sin-free and sickness-free forever and ever. 
You see, the life of mindless sin that so easily compromises you and me, it will forever be released when we're with him forever. I do know this, that we're going to have hands that will only serve the Lord. I do know this, we'll have eyes that are worthy to gaze upon the holiness of our Lord. We'll have ears that will be able to bear the holy soundtrack of eternity to come. We'll have tongues that will only speak blessings and and not cursing. We'll have feet that are swift to do the bidding of our Savior. And we'll have hearts that are clean and pure and they're large enough and and they're holy enough and loving enough to embrace embrace the glory of God. That is the future of those who are in heaven now who will return with him in his second coming. Now those on earth, those on earth will be called up in the clouds with them. Those of our departed followers of Jesus, we come second and we meet him in heaven. That word in verse 17 is the word where we get, it's it's called up, it's, it's rapture is the word. Now, it's at this point that many Christians have myriads of interpretations of exactly what's happening here and how that fits with a a cosmic timeline of the second coming of Jesus. It seems to me that the way we should understand this passage is connected to the words that Paul is using here. One word that really grounds and helps us understand what Paul is talking about is the word that you see in verse 17 that is translated meet. Let's talk about that word for a second because I think it really helps us understand what our future destiny and the second coming of Christ is going to look like. The word meet is used two other times in the New Testament. Uh, One time it's used in Matthew chapter 25 verse 6. It's the parable of the virgins that are waiting for the bridegroom and they meet the bridegroom and they welcome the bridegroom and they go back to the wedding feast. In Acts chapter 28, verse 15, you have Roman believers that travel out to the forum of Appius and they welcome Paul and they go back to Rome with Paul. That word meet utilized 2,000 years ago is the action of, of, of citizens When a king or a dignitary comes to their town, they go out to the city gate. They welcome that dignitary. They they meet that dignitary. They greet that dignitary. They mark the occasion that the king has come, and they go back to the city to celebrate here. So it seems the clarity that Paul is saying is, is that the dead in Christ will come back, their bodies will be resurrected, and there will be a resurrection body that they have, and we here on earth will go into the clouds, and we'll meet in this grand, glorious welcoming of the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and we'll come back back here to this earth in the transformed inauguration that ultimately will be the new heaven and the new earth where we will be with Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Now, in this passage, those who are alive at this time will greet him in the sky, come back with him, reign with Jesus, There's no doubt that there are many questions about the end times. And I just think sometimes we miss the forest for the trees. We we have, and I don't mean this uh, in in any way, there are times that we want to fill in and answer questions that, that Paul is just not interested in answering for us here. If you boil down this passage, Paul is saying, have hope, Christians, because Jesus is coming back. Your loved ones who have died, if they're in Christ... They're safe, and they will be with Jesus forever. 
And he tells us this much. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. This is our hope. Our hope is fixed in the resurrection of Jesus and it's a hope that is fixed in the return of Jesus. Apart from this hope, I honestly don't know what hope you have or I would have in the face of death. I mean, apart from the glorious good news that someone has defeated death and death doesn't get the last word and we're certain of a fixed destination that we have, if you remove that from this story, I'm not particularly sure what hope we would have. I remember about 12 years ago, I was pastoring in another church and I had a situation where there was a connection to me through a family friend and a tragic passing of a young lady. And I was asked by the family to step in and to do the funeral. And I was absolutely honored to do that. Did not know her, really did not have a, a, a longstanding relationship with this family, but they were, uh, I was the closest sort of connection that they had. And so they called upon me to do it. I met with the brother who came into my office and he said, David, I want you to do this funeral, but you have to do it under two conditions. One is, is that you don't mention God. And the second is, is you never open the Bible. So in that moment, I felt like, I don't know how many of you watched the World Series last night, but it was, it's sort of like being asked to go up and to face the starting pitching of the Astros or the Phillies with your hands tied behind your back and blindfolded. I was dumbfounded. And I had to admit in that moment, I, I can't do what you're asking me to do because I'm a Christian first and foremost. And I'm a proclaimer of the gospel. We had a great conversation. And ultimately what he was asking was that I wouldn't condemn his sister to hell or a preacher into heaven. And I don't do that. That's not my role. It's not your role. We leave that to the sovereign goodness of our God. He was asking that I didn't pass out an offering plate. Well, you know, of course I wasn't going to do those kinds of things. And we had the service. And, and in that moment, we, we talked about the hope that God offers. And we did it in a way that was to honor the, the request of the family. But in that moment, it just dawned upon me. What hope does someone have when you remove God and you remove the word of God, your life is not enough, my friend. No matter the legacy that you're making here on earth, through your family and through your friends and through your occupation and through your good works and through the wonderful hobbies that you have, I want you to hear this now. It is not enough. That there is a hope in the face of death, and that hope is not the legacy that we leave behind, although that is vitally important. Our hope in the face of death is not, first and foremost, the indelible imprint that we make upon our loved ones and our friends, although that is important, of course it is. But our hope must be fixed in something beyond us, and this is the good news of the gospel and Paul is pointing the Thessalonians to this. And if we would have ears to hear, he is pointing us who overhear this conversation to the same hope. That hope must be fixed in something that is firm, 
That hope must be fixed in someone who has defeated death and defeated hell. And ultimately, when you trust him as your Savior and Lord, when death knocks on your door, and it will, when death knocks upon your door, you're able to say, I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. I didn't do enough in my life to earn God's love. I couldn't. I'm a sinner. But I'm with him because he did enough. Can you say that? Do you know that? Is that the assurance of your life right now? It can, can you sing that wonderful hymn of the faith that maybe is, is familiar to your ears and maybe more familiar to your heart that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock. I stand. All of the ground is what, church? Let us pray.